This is Frank's mom, and you're listening to the From the Hack podcast. Part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi, everyone. My name is Frank Rock, and welcome to my mom's favorite curling podcast. On this week's episode, we welcome a young lady fresh off winning her first career Grand Slam title. We also welcome the coach of a team that just won a Grand Slam event for the second consecutive season. And then we will be joined by a member of the Spanish team that recently won a silver medal at the World Mixed Championship. Hello everyone, thanks for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. Before starting this week's interviews, I want to thank all of you who reached out either by text or private message to ask me about my mom over the past few weeks. The latest update is that the radiation treatments helped, and we are cautiously optimistic that at the very least, mom will be able to celebrate the holiday season with our family, which was in doubt as recently as a month ago. Anyhow, back to curling. My first guest this week is Carly Burgess who won her first career Grand Slam last weekend as Team Jennifer Jones defeated Caitlin Laws in the final of the Hearing Life Tour Challenge Grand Slam event. Curly, you and I are chatting just a few days after you won your first career Grand Slam title. They often say the first slam is the toughest to win. How did it feel to get that one in the books? Um, pretty exciting. Like, uh, we still in our group chat, we're still texting and we're saying, oh, like we won. Like it's, um, it's really special. And, um, getting to win with Jen and her being her 10th, it's just really like, it's super exciting. And I'm a lot of curlers like want to win a grand slam because it's just so special. And, um, to be able to do it at this age with these girls, uh, it's super cool. And I can't wait for, uh, the rest of the year. So your team ended the round robin in Niagara Falls at 2-2, two and two, albeit with losses to two outstanding teams in Holman and Hasselborg. Did you feel like your team was in a good place entering the playoffs, Carly, or was it a case of simply being glad to have made it to the playoffs while still trying to find your groove? Well, with the new rules and the draw to the button, we um, we actually had a pretty good draw to the button as a team, so we knew we had a chance. And um, again, like losing those two games, it could have went either way, and they're both great teams. So you can't really be upset about <laughs> losing to home in Hasselberg just because they're both really great teams. But um, we knew if we got through to the playoffs, we just had to, uh, as soon as we qualified, it, we're starting on a, a fresh again. So... Um, we knew we just had to, we we're going to play great teams in the playoffs regardless. And, um, we felt like we were playing well throughout the week anyway. So we just said, let's keep it going and make a couple more shots here and there and, um, see what happens. And we kind of just kept flowing with the playoff feeling and, uh, no, it was really good. And I never thought our team was, um, even though we had two losses in the round robin, yeah, those, those are hard losses, but we never felt, uh, as a group, we never felt like we were out of it. So um, we had some good draw to the buttons and uh, we made it through. So that's all that matters. So Carly, I'm pretty sure that if Jen Jones were sitting in on this interview, she would say that it did not matter which team she played against in the finals in Niagara Falls. That said, I wonder if the rest of the team felt any additional motivation to perform well in the final, not only because it was a Grand Slam final, but because you were playing against a team skipped by Caitlin Laws, Jen's longtime teammate. Yeah, I don't really think, uh, I don't think it was part of the equation. Like, I think um, if you ever get a chance to be in the final, you want to make the most, uh, you want to make all your shots just because uh, 
you want to win that final. So I don't think um, playing Caitlin and her team was really like an extra pressure or anything. I think it was just once we got in the final, we uh, we put ourselves in the best spot we could. So why not just go and win it? And we all, uh, it was a pretty big deal as like none of us have won a Grand Slam. So um, we just, uh, I don't know, really didn't think about who we were playing and just made some nice shots. So so I got to ask you, Carly, will there be any big purchases with that first career Grand Slam championship check? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, um, just saving up right now because I work part time. So, Carly, I have to ask you, you've been playing with Jen for well over a year now. But I wonder if you still stop yourself on the ice on occasion and think, holy shit, Jen Jones is on my team. Or are you way past that at this point? I think I'm way past that now. But I do have those moments where Jen makes a really nice shot and she's just she's one of the best and I'm like wow holy shit that was a really good shot Jen made like she's just super clutch and um she can still make all those big shots so I guess sometimes I'm just really grateful for her sometimes when she makes some big shots um but uh no like I think we're gelling pretty well and she gets along with us super easy so it doesn't really like it's not unnatural at all so no but I am very lucky like I wouldn't be at this stage in my life without her taking the chance on us. So I'm like super grateful for her. And uh, really there's a lot, a, a lot to, to give her a lot of thanks. So Carly, I noticed during the slam that Emily Zacharias was in the house calling the line for Jen's stones. Uh, how has that transition been going? Because if memory serves, Emily has never really been in the house before, not even when uh, you guys were dominating juniors a few seasons ago. Yeah, no, um, she, I think she played where she was in the house with her sister one time when they were just playing with three in juniors because uh, one other player was hurt. So she's had a little bit of experience, but um, it just kind of seemed like to work out the best as it would give Emily some time to talk to Jen and me never really being in the house, not saying I couldn't do it, but Jen's just used to me sweeping her last rock based on last year and and then uh, Lauren being one of our strongest sweepers, like she's really good on the brush. So it just made sense that way. And um, yeah, I think Emily's really enjoying her position. And uh, yeah, I think she's she's really getting into it. And um, yeah, she's learning. So Emily certainly seemed to be doing a good job calling a line, Carly, although it might serve her well to look at some old videos of your coach, Glenn Howard, to encourage her to uh, increase that volume a little bit on some of those shots just part of like um, what she's learning is trying to be louder because she's a pretty quiet individual. So it gives her the opportunity to, to be loud and to be out there and uh, speak her words. So no, it's, it's different, but I think it's going to work. And finally, Carly, I've had the pleasure of having Myla Platt on the podcast as a guest a couple of times already. And her team is undoubtedly off to a terrific start to their junior careers, having won the U18s and the U20s last year. You had arguably one of the best curling careers, uh, junior curling careers in Canadian history. And your transition to the women's game has gone relatively well. Can you provide any advice to Team Platt and other teams like them who are excelling in juniors and have an eye towards eventually being competitive on the women's tour yeah I guess like when I look back on my junior career and like going into women's and the biggest thing is I've always had a team that had the same goals and I've always had a team that we could hang on like we could hang out on and off the ice like we were a really tight-knit group and we loved spending time together we always wanted to win so I think like the biggest thing is moving in in juniors and into women's is finding 
finding a team that that you love to be around that all have that same goal and passion um to work um because you put so much time into it and uh you need everyone to be on the same page if for example in 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 high school you miss out on some extracurriculars but your goal is always curling and the girls came first in in high school for me so I think just finding a group of girls that have the same work ethic and don't give up like sometimes curling curling can really suck sometimes but um, I think you just got to keep with it and everything happens for a reason and uh, I really just think don't give up and if you put your mind to it I think anything can happen and for me from Nova Scotia, it's, it is really hard to, um, to become an elite curler in the East coast. And I took the chance and moved and I didn't give up. And now I'm here curling with Jennifer Jones. So it's, uh, I think just keep working at it and, and don't give up. My next guest this week is Olympic gold medalist Ryan Fry, the coach of Italy's Tima Tornaz, who won their second career Grand Slam title in Niagara Falls last weekend, and who have become one of the very good stories in the curling world over the past 12 months or so. Ryan, a big win for Tima Tornaz at the Slam event in Niagara Falls last weekend. Can you share how satisfying it was to see the team succeed at such an important event this early in your time as their coach? Yeah, it's just, it's it's confidence that's coming with the amount of effort the team's putting in. So it's, um, it's, it's a similar feel for me. It's something that's very familiar. It's, uh, it's putting in, in more work than everyone and the results follow. So I I'm very privileged to be a part of a team who's, um, willing to put that work and effort into not only their own technical ability, but to also being the best teammates and team they can possibly be. So it's, um, it, it's it might look like you know something that's happened fast but this team has been um working extremely hard behind the scenes so it's it's nice for them to start seeing some of the some of that work really um really come to the forefront now we often hear that curlers in countries where the sport is not as popular often have limited access to ice uh, ryan with the olympics headed to italy in 2026 has the curling federation ensured that teams like retornas and constantini on the women's side have access to ice the way teams in countries such as Canada and Scotland might have. Yeah, we're we're very lucky. We have a very supportive um, Olympic Federation that um, you know is willing to help the team um, as much as possible. So we we can we can have access to ice. Um, as we see fit right now with the ice usually goes in in August and will come out probably in, in just April, early May. So um, as we get closer to the Olympics, we may, we may alter that and have ice for a longer period of time. But like I said, the, I think that, you know, having, having two teams or, 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 uh, say a, a team and a B team in Italy um, in both men's and women's, makes it makes it um easier because uh you know with the federation able to support these two teams um and help them you know get the best out of everything um all their work that it's it it's starting to show results you know not only with joelle but also with stefania so it's it's an exciting program to be a part of and like i said i'm just very fortunate I want to take you back to the final in Niagara Falls for a moment, uh, Ryan, uh, where Team Tornas face an opponent in the final that almost forces teams to stay patient or risk giving up big ends. 
what advice did you have uh, or what advice did you share with the team before the game and how happy were you not only with the win in Niagara Falls but also with how Team Retornaz was able to stay patient against Team Botcher throughout the game and take advantage of opportunities when they presented themselves? Yeah, I, I think the I think curling and you know it's a, it's about to take its if it if it hasn't already it's about to even take its next step forward as far as um, these teams' abilities to make shots. So um, you're starting to see with the you know with the brushing that the top teams have available to them and and really figuring out how to maximize and utilize that. Um, that you're seeing a very, very high percentage of shots made. And it's not just the easy shots. It's it's extremely hard chases, it's extremely hard runbacks and draws. Um, and you're starting to see that happen. So when we step out on the ice, no matter who that is against, we understand that we need to play, you know, at a certain percentage and at a certain level. And um, the biggest thing is that we're not shying away from, you know, the more difficult shots in order to, you know, potentially, um, you know, get, Long in the game, we're taking the opportunities that show that you know show themselves to us within the game, and um, and you know Joel and the team have a hundred percent confidence in their ability. If you know if things don't go perfectly, that um, we're able to either get out of it with a really good draw, as you saw in the first end against the, the game in the game against Botcher, and also you know go for go for the opportunity to win the game. Whereas you know I think a lot of teams in the in the eighth end may have chosen to just hit that and hit hit an outside one and, and give um, them their deuce and just take it to the extra end. Whereas our team, you know, we wanted to force the issue and make them make something extremely difficult to get to that extra end. So I, I think it's just not shying away from the very difficult shots that, you know, maybe maybe have been shied away from in the past. And it's it's just understanding, you know, your team inside and out and what our capabilities and strengths are. And and it's it's starting to show that you'll start seeing some of these top teams shooting extremely high percentages on extremely difficult shots. And that's, you know, mostly in part to better technical performances, but also being able to really understand um, the sweeping. Joel Retornaz and Amos Mozaner are relatively well-known by curling fans, Ryan, but their front end certainly doesn't seem to get the attention they deserve, given that they've won two slams in the past, what is it, eight or ten months. What can you tell me about those two young players that play front end for Team uh, Retornaz? Yeah, you know, um, from position to position, I think that we have the the best or if not the second best uh, and and you know this is just me speaking, but I think we have the best players at each position um, down the lineup, and that's and you know that's one of the very exciting things about this team. Um, and and they're only getting better. They're very they're young, and th- their work ethic is um, through the roof. Uh, I would I would venture to say that there's no harder working team out there um, than our team. And you when you put when you put um, Mattia and Sebastiano, their their skill set is is unbelievable. And then um, it's you know, Mattia is our lead, but he also he also um, calls the line for Joel's shots, and he's becoming extremely extremely proficient in that. And he's only going to get better at that. And uh, as far as the sweeping, there's there's no one there's no one that can touch this team as far as sweeping um, pound for pound. They're the strongest front end um sweepers in the game and um you know as as much as people want to you know highlight uh technique and stuff like that when you put guys that are six five and six seven two hundred and some pounds 
um, on the brush uh, and have, you know, the ability to judge, um, the ability to hold a rock straight, the ability to curl a rock. Um, it's just, it becomes, it becomes a game of being able to throw within a tolerance and then judging and line calling the stone correctly. And that's where the shots are made and missed. And it's not made and missed on how you technically release the rock. It's just being within a tolerance and, and understanding that tolerance and understanding what your sweepers can do. And it's, it's funny because I've been working with Mattia on, on line calling. Um, and when I started working with these, this team this year, I started, I started calling line just to see where I was on the, on that scale. And it's far exceeded what I, what I could um, see in my competitive career, the ability to, the ability to um, make a rock curl, the ability to hold a rock straight when you need to. And then the ability to drag a rock is just, it's, it's gotten to a level where it's super entertaining to watch. And it's, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully broadcasts and, and social media and all that can highlight to show, to show fans exactly what these players are able to do. And, and, it's going to take a monumental effort for teams to catch up to these top sweeping teams. So Ryan, essentially what you're saying is that technique and strength is what will revolutionize sweeping over the coming years compared to all of the fabric and broom changes that created such controversy just a few years ago. Without a doubt, there's no discrepancy. There's no, there's no um, differences between brushes anymore. It's just, it's, it's work. It's the effort that these, these athletes are putting in. Um, you see Brett Gallant and, and um, Benny, he- Benny Hebes on the brush. You see, you know, um, Mo- Amos and Sebastiano on the brush. And then you start seeing, you know, the, the, the shorter guys, the amount of strength they have, like Bobby Lammy and Hammy McMillan. Um, th- there's just, there's just effort that's being put in. These, these guys aren't just, you know, working at the gym lightweight. They're there's, it's kind of similar to what, you know, the team Jacobs team started and, and it's been taken to a level a few levels above that um i see the amount of effort these these athletes are throwing in and they're training um you know as if it's any other sport and and they're putting in hours and hours at the gym um to work on their technical sweeping and to work on their strength and it's it just shows so as far as brooms are concerned i i don't think that there's anything more or less that needs to be done to the brooms i think that it's an advantage for the top players it's no difference than a somebody using the same hockey stick if someone can shoot it more accurately and shoot it harder um you don't change the stick you you work harder to catch up to the players that can do it better um and it'll be fun to see over the next little bit um what these what these athletes can take it to at least in my opinion, uh, Ryan, Joel Wertornaz is one of the more interesting stories in curling. I mean, there were about 15 years there where he was a good player whose team could upset the odd top team at the Worlds or even at the Olympics, but they weren't consistent enough to reach the top tier. Whereas over the past five years or so, things have changed for Wertornaz. He's uh, now in his early 40s and skipping one of the best teams in the world. Can you discuss Joel's work ethic and the success he's now having later in his career? Well, I think... I think for Joel, you you kind of said it himself. Joel to me is one of one of the most impressive people in curling. Um, to to be quite frank with you, he's he's played. He started, um, you know, in his twenties, and he's consistently for a long time got the shit kicked out of him, and he stayed. Um, you know, he stayed true to to what he wanted to accomplish, and and he started. You know, he was part of 
bringing a curling program to Italy, um, just in his own desires to be successful in the sport. And then he actually had to wait till some of the, some of the results of what, you know, having the Olympics in Torino and in the results that he had in Torino for that to take effect. Cause when that was happening, you know, um, Amos, Sebastiano and Mattia were, you know, just be, you know, they're, they're, they're early in their, in their, childhood so it's you he had to wait for players to develop in order to um, catch up to him and at the same point he had to develop along with that to become one of the best skips in the world so to be quite honest with you he's one of the most impressive people I've been associated with in the sport because he's his dedication to being the best um, he's never lost he's never lost that desire to continue um, fighting for that opportunity to be one of the best players in the world and for him to start realizing that success now is it's just it's something that is so cool to be a part of and um, like I said this is this this team is special and and I just feel extremely fortunate to be a part of it. So tell me, Ryan, how does one become the coach of the Italian men's curling team? Um, I've known Joel a little bit. We kind of, we kind of, you know, had a converse, had conversations here and there. Um, it just basically we sat down at the end of the year and um, had a had a really open and honest conversation about um, you know what I'm looking to continue to do in the sport and and what you know this team is continuing and then we we I met with the team and then I met with each one individually and then from there it I spoke to Claudio because me and Claudio are, have been close through our careers and I really wanted to make sure that he was in line with you know what I'm in line with and it just it just honestly came to the we all came to the understanding the the six of us that um it was a very good fit and we're all prepared to put as much effort into getting the success that this team wants um as as we as we have available to us so i i think that it's you know this is a this is a six-man team um including you know the four players and claudio and myself and you know we have the support of a very very um, good, good federation and understanding federation. So we have all the pieces in place, and now it's just strictly putting in more effort and work than every other team. And I, I'm very confident in what this team's going to be able to accomplish over the next few years. And finally, Ryan, how much of a benefit is it to you as a coach to know that the Italian Curling Federation will have access to the funds necessary to properly prepare the team for the Home Olympics in 2026, essentially given the fact that Amos and Stefania won gold in mixed doubles at the last Olympics in Beijing and have been very much at the forefront of efforts to promote the games in Italy itself? Yeah, I, I, like, like I said, I, I don't necessarily know. I, I'm the, the success that Amos and Stefania had is, is remarkable. And it's it's super cool for the program and and it really helps, you know, build the interest in the sport, helps, you know, secure sponsorship in the sport, helps build grassroots in the sport. Um, but this team is very much committed to, you know, not resting on any of that. It, it's just it's 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 gonna be putting in a ton of effort and preparing for a, a new event. So as far as do I think that that success is going to help with new success? No, I think the work that we're going to put in over the next two and a half years is going to be the reason why we're successful. And, um, you know, I, I hope that 
more than anything, um, you know, Italians and, and, you know, kids growing up that have aspirations of succeeding in sport, just really take the work ethic that not only this team, but the Italian, the Italian Federation of Athletes, um, how committed they are to to the successes in, in each individual sport. And I think that that just resonates right through the entire program. So it's, it's like I said, it's just super cool to be a part of it and see it from, see, you know, how a sport develops and how a federation develops from a different lens. And, um, and it, it, I'm just, I'm super jacked to just be along for the ride. My final guest this week is Sergio Vez, who's kept Team Spain to a silver medal at the 2023 World Mixed Curling Championship in Scotland last week, losing to Johan Nygren of Sweden in the final. It was a second silver medal at the World Mixed Championship for Sergio Vez, who has also won a bronze medal at the World Mixed Doubles Championship. Sergio, we are chatting a few days after the end of the World Mixed Championship in Scotland, where Team Spain lost in the final to Sweden. Your team went undefeated in the round robin, uh, Sergio. It must have felt nice showing up to an important event like the Mixed Worlds, finding good form early and maintaining it throughout the round robin. Well, uh, making a good round robin, it's always so important, especially at the Mixed where the top seed after the round robin gets a bye to the quarterfinals. So we knew we had to push hard from the since the beginning, like not only uh, waiting to qualify for the players, but also uh, we wanted to to keep that the uh, first seed position of the group. Uh, I think we started pretty solid. We got to the ice pretty good. I think we made a, a great uh, first couple of games against Brazil and Austria, and then we had probably one of the, I, I believe it was one of the key games from the round robin against uh, Germany. Uh, it's uh, a such experienced team, uh, Felix Schultz, uh, and also his uh, second day. They played the Olympics in in 2014, I think, in Sochi. So it was a pretty experienced team. Uh, we knew if, if we win that game, that we'll go pretty like pretty confident to the last last games of the round robin. We did that, and since then, until the very last game against Sweden, we we played better and better every game. So. I believe we did a great job at the beginning of the round robin, especially because we our lead had to leave after four games, so we knew we had the last two, three round robin games with only three players, which is always a bit hard, especially for the ones who have to sweep like six or eight rocks in in every end. Um, and we also knew that we had USA and Italy, two probably of the toughest teams, uh, only playing with three players. Uh, from from my team, so so I don't know. I think we we did pretty well. We we're also impressed that we got a seven and a zero record after after round robin. Sergio, I've uh, spoken to a lot of very good curlers who tell me they always worry when they start getting towards the end of the round robin at a major event and they haven't had that one bad game or that one clunker, as they call it, yet. Was there a part of you that was getting a little bit nervous as you approached the end of the round robin that you hadn't had that bad game yet as you were about to enter the playoffs where one bad game could lead to you going home? Well, uh, when we got the silver back in 2018 in Canada, uh, we wo- we lost one game in, in the round robin. It was uh, against China Taipei, which probably you could think it, w- it was going to be an easier game than the ones we-, we won. And I think it helped us a lot. But in this case, uh, we knew that if we lose one of the first six games before we had already clinched that uh, first uh, position of the group, 
we knew we had to play eight finals. So uh, we didn't really like that. So uh, unless we had lost the last game of the round robin, which maybe could have helped us to to just to realize that, okay, guys, we can lose against anybody here. Let's bring the, I don't know, the foot to the to the ground and, and, and keep working. But um, but I don't know. We we were pretty happy. We we still we learned a lot from that loss in Canada in 2018. So once we knew what we had to do, there was no point of uh, having to lose to realize that we had to to keep working harder and that nothing was going to be easy. So I want to fast forward to the semifinals in Aberdeen with you for a moment here, Sergio. I've spoken to many players who have played in the semifinals at a World Championship or the Olympics, and they tell me that it's the most stressful game of the event because if you win in the semis, you're guaranteed a medal. Still, if you lose it, you risk coming home with no medal at all because if you lose that 3-4 game, you don't win the bronze medal. Did your team feel any additional pressure in the semis versus Norway with a trip to the World Championship final at stake? Well, uh, we knew that the the other three teams that were playing the semifinals with us, we were all unbeaten. So we knew it's going to be a really hard game, especially if you see the name of the countries. You're playing Norway, you're playing Sweden, you're playing Canada. Mm, probably somebody who could say the best five countries, uh, curling countries in the world will name those three countries. So we knew we were probably the underdogs of the competition, of at least of the semifinal. So that uh, made us have no pressure at all. We knew we we had done a, such a such a such a really good uh, competition already. So if we could manage to get a medal, it would be an extra. But we're really happy of uh, making the the semifinals, even though we had to uh, lost the last two games. So I think we had no pressure. We I think we enjoyed it a lot. Most of the people watching were supporting us. So. We had everything, like we had nothing to lose and a lot to win. And that, I think, helped us, yes, not to have any kind of pressure on ourselves. The championship final at the Mix Worlds was tied 2-2 at the fourth end break, uh, Sergio. Uh, then the game took a turn. Sweden scored three in the fifth and then stole three more in the sixth. Is it safe to say that the reason for the steal in the sixth is that your team now all of a sudden had to take some risks in that sixth end to uh, score a couple of points in order to get closer to Sweden as this was an eight-end final and you were starting to run out of ends. Yeah, obviously when you are tied and you give up the three without the hammer in the fifth end, then against these kind of teams that are really not not know how to play defensive, you have to take risks. Sometimes it works and uh, you can at least score two and go, get back to the game. Sometimes you end you end up giving a three. I think that's pretty common. And if you see scoreboards at a at a, a top level, that usually after giving a three or you or you go back getting a, a big end or at least a, a couple a deuce, or you end up giving an, a big steal. So I think we we had to take some risk. It didn't work out, but uh, but it could have worked. So I don't know. It probably will work work next time for us. <laughs> So this was your sixth appearance at the Mixed Worlds, Sergio. Can you speak to how much the quality and the depth of the teams at the event has improved since you first competed in 2015? Yeah, at the beginning, like probably uh, teams like different countries didn't take it so seriously. Um, probably you could see, I don't know. I, I'm gonna put as an example the three teams that played semifinals with us. You could see, but probably Canada, Sweden, and Norway bringing. I'm not going to say a bad team, but like not, not such a good team. So no, we're like well-known players. But uh, I think now people are, are liking mix. I think it's a, it's a game that 
proves that uh, women and men can play equally in curling, which is curling is one of the fewest games where they can play equally. Not not only that they can play together, they can play equally. So I think people like that. There are so many players who, who want to play mix, and that makes that every year the, the teams that uh, top countries are bringing to the world uh, states are, are better. You you could see that the Canadian teams have played uh, Briars and um, Scottish Tournament of Hearts. You could see uh, Balsat, who has played at world level for so many years. You could see the the Swedish girl that made the the goal at the Olympics as uh, as an alternate with Hasselborg. So there were so many good good players and also good teams that really makes this silver even more important to us. Sergio, when mixed doubles was added to the Olympic program, it was believed that it would help non-traditional curling nations not only qualify for the Olympics, but reach the podium. Although Italy won gold at the Olympics in Beijing, for the most part, the addition of mixed doubles to the Olympic program has mainly led to traditional curling nations dominating mixed doubles the way they do in men's and women's by sending some of their top curlers to the Mixed Doubles World Championships and the Olympics. Now, there have been whispers of mixed four-person curling being added to the Olympic program at some point in the future. I wonder if you're concerned that what happened in Mixed Doubles might be repeated in four-person mixed should the discipline ever be added to the Olympic program. Yeah, that's probably in the like natural path of uh, if, if it comes Olympic, probably the first uh, Olympic competition, maybe you can have a chance. But then it will happen the same as mixed doubles. Now you see the mixed doubles teams, and it's probably the same countries that are playing men and women. So it, those are the countries that have more players, have more foundings, have more ice rings. So it will probably become the same. Like You will probably see Canada, Scotland, Sweden, Norway getting the medals and the Olympic spots in, in the mix too. So I, I think we'll, it will be exactly the same as mixed doubles. Finally, uh, Sergio, uh, Spanish teams have had uh, some success at the World Championships in both mixed and mixed doubles over the past decade or so. Has that success translated to a growth of the sport in Spain? How many members and clubs do you currently have in the country, and and are you seeing an uptick in participation in the sport? Yeah, approximately there are like 300 or 400 curlers in Spain, so it's really a small community of people playing curling in Spain. Probably in, in in one of the small smallest towns in Canada, you have those thirty three hundred or four hundred curlers already. So you can imagine the the big difference. Um, comparing to the last years, probably has increased a bit, uh, mostly with uh, juniors, which are the future of our curling um, uh, in Spain. So the the federation is working harder with them. There are more projects. There are more tournaments. There there are more. Um, weekend practices for them. There are more foundings too. So I think it will increase the, the following years. Or I think we, Spain could have like a, one or two potential really good teams playing the, the tour. And uh, I don't know, who knows, In probably in 10, 15 years trying to make to the Olympics. Uh, but right now, it's a still a really small country regarding curling and probably only like one, two teams that can make it, might make a a good competition at world level, which is us. So, so I don't think the the silver we got at the mix really reflects the the curling community in in Spain. I think uh, apart from us, there there is a huge um, margin with the rest of the our our um, our Spanish competitors. So, 
So I, I, I hope it will it will still increase a bit. We need we still need facilities because we have no ice in Spain. There is only uh, an ice rink which uh, we share with uh, hockey and figure skating, a big one when we have um, three curling sheets for for only for curling for like six, seven months a year. But uh, there are, it's the same arena as hockey, so you can imagine the roofs are super high. It's really hard to to control temperature and humidity in the in the facility, so it's really hard for us. So imagine what what could Spain get if we get a, an ice rink? I don't know. It, it will be it will be amazing, but but not yet. Is that does it for this week's episode? A huge thank you to our guests. Carly Burgess, Ryan Fry, Sergio Vez, and of course, my mom for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. <laughs>